You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Go up on a high mountain, O messenger of Zion. O messenger of Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Father, we are just so amazed and overwhelmed at all the many ways you speak to us and reveal yourself to us. You strengthen us, you encourage us, you give us hope. As we just heard, you put together the broken pieces of our lives. And so, Lord, we turn to you with worship, with adoration, with amazement, with wonder, as we consider all that you have done for us. And Father, we pray now that you would open our ears to hear that messenger to your people, declaring, here is your God. Because you are here in our midst, Heavenly Father. You are here in the midst of your people. You are here in the midst of your creation. You are present and moving and active. And so may we hear with our ears that incredible declaration, here is your God. And Lord, we want to hear your voice. We want to hear your voice and what you have to say to us, your people. And so we pray now, Lord, that you would find us attentive. Lord, you know we live in an age of incredible distraction. And the studies continue to show that our attention spans are growing shorter and shorter and shorter. The studies are saying, Lord, that we are incapable of listening more than five minutes, watching more than eight minutes before our mind wanders to something else. But Father, you are greater than all of that. You are greater than... You are greater than every statistic. You are greater than every discouraging cultural trend. You are greater. And so Father, I pray right now, though some of our distractions are, are things that you want us at times to focus on, things that you want us at times to be praying for. But God, I pray right now that nothing would hinder us from hearing your voice. Father, not mine. Not mine, Lord. Your voice. And so I pray, Lord, today that I would simply be your messenger. What greater privilege than be able to speak your words? Than to be able to share your heart? And so, Father, I pray that I would not get in the way of what you want to do. Your people are here. And they want to hear from you, Lord. They want to know what you are saying. So speak now, Lord. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem 
and proclaim to her. These are some of the most well-known words of Scripture, certainly some of the most well-known words of the book of Isaiah. We find them at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 40. Handel used these verses as part of his glorious musical piece, The Messiah. And so I believe that this morning the Lord is speaking to us his comfort, his comforting words, his encouraging words, his strengthening words. And why is the Lord declaring comfort to us? Why is the Lord declaring comfort to us? Is it because our life is working out the way we hoped it would? Is it because we've got a big bank account? Is it because we got what we were hoping for at work? Is it because our neighbors are easy to get along with? Is it because everyone in our life is walking with the Lord? Is it because our sports team won? Is it because our candidate is sitting in the White House? Is it because this culture is going the way the Lord would want it to? No. It's not why the Lord speaks comfort to us. And too many times we try to find comfort. (laughs) It's something that will not comfort. Too many times we turn to someone or we turn to something and hope that in them or in it we will find comfort. And God says, no, you will not. You will not. And yet he continues to speak words of comfort to us. Why? Why? What did the messenger Isaiah say some 2,900 years ago, 2,800 years ago? What did he say? Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What was the comforting word that was delivered? The comforting word was, your sin has been paid for. Your hard labor has come to an end. So comfort my people with this incredibly good news. Well, what was the punishment for sin that had been paid for? What was the hard labor that had come to an end? Well, to understand what the prophet was speaking of in chapter 40, we have to go back to chapter 39. 39 is a very short chapter. It's a very interesting chapter. Because in 39, King Hezekiah, who was a relatively good king, a relatively faithful king, had just recovered from a terminal illness. The prophet Isaiah had gone to him and said, get your house in order for you are going to die. You know, I'm sure on many occasions there was great excitement if you were a faithful king and a good prophet came to you to give you the word of the Lord. Because earlier that word from Isaiah was that the king of Assyria will not step foot in this city. Well, that's the kind of word that Hezekiah and all God's people would love to hear. But on this occasion, in chapter 38, the prophet came to the king and said, Get your house in order because you are going to die. And it says, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall. He was probably lying in his bed. And he cried out to the Lord. And he cried out with all of the anguish and distress of hearing such troubling news. And you know what the Lord told the man of God, the prophet Isaiah, says, you know what, turn around. I have another message for my godly king. And Isaiah went back and he said, look, the Lord has heard your prayer and he's going to give you 15 more years. That's that's, that's an amazing story right there. That's an amazing story right there. That God would hear the prayers of a single individual in distress over his own early death. And God showed his compassion and his grace and his kindness, and he said, okay, Hezekiah, you've got 15 more years. Of course, I'm not sure 15 more years in this life is necessarily a blessing, (laughs) but it's what his son wanted. And so the father said, okay, you have it. 
Well, obviously, Hezekiah was in a very jovial mood. He was very uplifted in his spirits now. And somehow or another, word of his miraculous healing had traveled. It had traveled to distant lands. We have no idea how. But some messengers, some envoys, some representatives from a far country came to King Hezekiah to celebrate with him the miraculous healing that his God had given him. And King Hezekiah did something that was probably a little bit foolish. And he showed these foreigners from a distant land, he showed them everything. Everything. Every last bit of treasure that his fathers had amassed, that the Lord had blessed the kingdom of Judah with. There was nothing that was hidden away, nothing that was not shown to these representatives from a distant land. Well, as they left, I'm sure Hezekiah was feeling pretty excited. Wow, not only am I rejoicing in my miraculous deliverance, but people from distant lands are coming to celebrate with me. Well, Isaiah, the man of God, showed up again. And he said, Hezekiah, who just visited you? And Hezekiah says, some folks from a very distant land. They came from Babylon. Babylon. And Isaiah said, what did you show them? And Hezekiah said, I showed them everything. Isaiah asked, is there anything that you didn't show them? No, replies Hezekiah. I showed them everything. And then the word of the Lord comes to the servant of God. The day is coming when everything in this kingdom will be taken to Babylon. A day is coming when everything in this kingdom will be taken to Babylon. Such a simple, short declaration. But Isaiah was prophesying the single most devastating event in Old Testament history. The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the captivity of God's people. As we read the pages of the Old Testament, there is nothing more devastating than that event for the people of God. And it's interesting because Isaiah is prophesying it some 120, 130, 140 years before it's going to take place. Isaiah was prophesying in the 8th century, the 700s B.C., the final captivity and destruction of Jerusalem would take place in 586 B.C. We don't know for sure in Hezekiah's reign when Isaiah spoke this word, probably about 15 years before Hezekiah died, but it was about 120 to 140 years before the captivity would come that Isaiah was prophesying it would come. Well, why would it come? Why would God raise up the Babylonians to destroy the city that he had chosen? Over and over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord says, in the place that I will choose for my name to dwell. When you enter that land, in the place that I will choose for my name to dwell. The Lord would choose Jerusalem. And then he would allow Solomon to build a house for his name, the temple. Glorious, spectacular, the centerpiece of true worship in the entire planet, there in God's city, Jerusalem. So why would God raise up the Babylonians to destroy the city that he had chosen? To destroy the house in which his name had dwelt? To take the people that were his unique possession? That's what he declared in Exodus 19. You are my unique possession of all the nations 
that I am Lord over on this earth. I choose you, Israel. I choose you, Israel, to belong to me in a way that no one else will. Why would God do that? Why would God do that? Why would God raise up Nebuchadnezzar? Why would he raise up, as Habakkuk describes the Babylonians, a ruthless, godless, vile, arrogant nation? Why would God do that? And then bring them this time against the walls of Jerusalem. Only in 586 there was no escape. In 586 there was no miraculous intervention where 185,000 enemy soldiers die in a single night. In 586 there was none of that. There was a breach of the walls. There was a failed effort to get out the back door. There was destruction. There was fire. There was death. There was captivity. Why would God allow that? Why would God ordain that? One reason. One word. Sin. Sin. We don't have to get any more complicated than that. We don't have to get any more theologically in-depth than that. There's one reason why God raised up the Babylonians. There's one reason why he handed his people over to them. Sin. And for decades, the few that survived would live in captivity. They would live as foreigners in a strange land. And we know some of their stories from the book of Daniel, from the book of Ezekiel. Both of those incredible men of God were captives, captives their entire adult life in Babylon. But sin, that's all it was. We don't need to be a PhD in history. You don't need to study hours and weeks and years on end. That happened because of sin. Well, long before the punishment even came, long before the devastation of Jerusalem even came, in Isaiah 40, the Spirit of the Lord gave Isaiah another message. And it would be good news. It would be comforting news. Not the news of the captivity, not the news of the destruction of Jerusalem, not the news of the destruction of the temple, but comforting news, good news, news that really penetrates a despairing and discouraging heart. And what was that news? Jerusalem, your hard service, it's over. Your sins have been fully paid for. You have received double from the hand of the Lord. But now that's done. You see, Isaiah was looking to the future. The future that would lead to captivity. But then he was looking to the future on the other side of captivity. Isaiah 40 and much of the rest of the book of Isaiah is incredible. Because it's already assuming the Babylonian captivity is a foregone conclusion. Even though it's still some 140 years in the future, it's already a done deal. It's already a done deal. And that has been absolutely prophesied and predicted by Isaiah and others. Jeremiah much closer to that horrific event. But now in Isaiah 40... The tone of the prophet changes. Because you see, the Babylonian captivity is not going to be the end. The Babylonian captivity is not going to be the end of God's people. It's not going to be the end of God's purposes for his people. There's going to be a more distant future beyond that. Where the servant of the Lord will get up on a high mountain and will proclaim to Zion. 
and will proclaim to Judah good news, comforting news, encouraging news. Your sin has been paid for. Well, I imagine for all of us it's impossible not to hear these messages and think of our own situation. Our sin has made hard work for us. Our sin has made a heavy task for us to bear. There's not one of us here that can't think of multiple times that our sin put a burden on our backs. And for a time, maybe we tried to carry it. For a time, maybe we tried to bear the consequence for our sin. But of course we realize we can't. The burden is too heavy. The load is too hard. And now, far more effectively than the Babylonian captivity, far more effectively than the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, far more effectively has our sin been paid in full. Hear these comforting words from the Lord. Your hard labor has ended. Your sin has been paid for in full. And no, you did not receive double from the hand of the Lord. He did. He did. Jesus received more than double from the hand of his Father so that your hard labor could end so that your sins could be completely paid for. That is comforting news. That is comforting news. You know, I think many of us feel like we deal with waves of discouraging news. We deal with waves of challenging circumstances. And sometimes we forget, in the midst of that, there is incredible comfort. Not in the discouraging news that we're hearing, but in those words of comfort that comforted God's people 2,800 years ago. Even more so now that Jesus has come, they comfort us. Because of the cross, because of his death, because of his resurrection, your hard labor has ended. The consequence for your sin has been paid in full. He received double from the hand of the Lord. But now, your captivity is over. Your captivity is over. And one of the main things I feel like the Lord wanted me to share this morning with you all is that we really have a choice each day. And numerous times throughout each day, we have a choice. Are we going to hear all of those discouraging reports that are out there? I'm not trying to say they're not. The Lord is not trying to say they're not. Discouraging report after discouraging report after discouraging report. There's no end to the bad news. And if we choose to, we can focus on that. And to a certain extent, we need to be aware of it because we need to be praying for these things. But in the midst of that, the Lord is giving us something else to hear. The Lord is giving us something else to listen to. His messenger with his good news. Get up to a high mountain, O messenger of Zion. Lift up your voice 
O messenger to the cities of Judah, proclaim to them, here is your God. And so every day, until the Lord calls us home, there are going to be two extremes that are competing for our heart, our attention, our soul, our mind. And one of those extremes is the bad news that's all around us. The bad news that will always, in part, be the natural context of our lives. But the other extreme, the other extreme is the voice of the Lord through his messengers declaring words of comfort, speaking to our hearts, getting up to that high mountain and lifting up their voices with all of their strength. Your hard labor has ended. Your sin has been paid in full. He has received double for your sin and your captivity has ended. That doesn't mean the bad report magically disappears. It doesn't mean every circumstance now is perfect and beautiful. But what it does mean is that everything that you need to navigate that bad news has been given to you. Has been given to you. Everything that we need to navigate those bad reports, it's been given to us. It's been given to us. You know, that is not even remotely what the message was supposed to be. A couple people were asking me earlier in the week, Dave, what are you going to preach on? And I said, well, I'm not sure. And then I had kind of decided on Isaiah 40. That's today's chapter and today's reading. And someone came to me and said, well, you're not preaching on Isaiah 40, are you? I said, well, I was thinking about it, but maybe now I won't. And this is a dear brother, and so he knows that I'm just pulling his chain a little bit. But then I was like, well, maybe I won't. I, I thought I was going to. But to be honest with you, as I've been reading Isaiah 40 the last couple of days, I really don't have a sermon per se. I just have been gripped. I just have been gripped with some of the truths of Isaiah 40. You know, there's a reason why it's one of the most read chapters in the book of Isaiah. Because it's just incredible declaration after incredible declaration after incredible declaration. There's a reason why Handel chose some of this text to put to music, along with other incredible passages of Scripture. So I had a couple of things in mind, and that was kind of just the intro. But really what I wanted to focus on is a phrase that's repeated a couple of times. We see it in verse 21. Haven't you heard? Haven't you heard? And then we see it come up again in verse 28. Haven't you heard? And so really that is what I felt like the Lord was asking me to focus on this morning. That simple question. Haven't you heard? Haven't you heard? Well, haven't you heard what? Well, of course, haven't you heard the voice of the messenger who's getting up to the high mountain and raising his voice? Haven't you heard the words of comfort that your captivity has come to an end, that your sins have been paid for double, and that your hard service has ended? That's, that's part of it, and that maybe is enough, but there's too much more in Isaiah 40. I can't quite end yet. But people of God, haven't we heard? 
Haven't we heard? Let's pick it up in verse 12. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens? You know, I... It's just impossible for the human mind to comprehend how big God is. We just need to say that right off the bat. You know, what Isaiah pens in, in, in chapter 40 are some of the most glorious words of Scripture to try to explain to such puny individuals like you and me. Just how big God is. And you know what? As, as perfect and as beautiful and as powerful as these words are, they fall completely short. Not because there's anything wrong with them. This is the perfect, inspired, inerrant word of God. But because God is too big. <laughs> He's just too big. So the Spirit of the Lord inspired Isaiah and said, you know, Isaiah, tell the people to try to imagine every drop of water on this planet. Well, we can't even imagine that. I'm sure some science guy or gal in her lab has tried to calculate how much water is on this planet. And Isaiah just says, yeah, he just holds that in his hand. You know, the top astrophysicists, the top astronomers have no idea how big the universe is. They, do, they don't. And look at the words of Isaiah. Yeah, he measures that in his hand. Our God is so big. He's so big. Haven't you heard this? Don't you know this? Don't you know how big your God is. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket. We've got some friends here who've been to North Africa. I hear the Sahara Desert's pretty big. I hear there's a few grains of sand in that desert and the Gobi Desert and all the other deserts of the world. And Isaiah says, yeah, he holds all that in a basket. Like he's making a delivery of bread to a house. That's all. If you're in the middle of the Sahara Desert, it's a pretty big basket. Or weighed the mountains on the scales. You know, I've only climbed a few mountains in my life, and a couple of them broke me. And one mountain all by itself is pretty massive. There's a range over in the other part of the world, the Himalayas, I'm told. It's not the Himalayas, it's the Himalayas. They have some pretty big mountains there. The Andes, South America, I've seen Denali in Alaska, the largest peak in North America. You know, and these are some pretty massive chunks of stone. You fall just on a little piece of it and it can shatter your bones. Some of us have experienced that as well. And you know what Isaiah says? Eh, he puts them on a scale, you know, just like a couple, you know, ounces of beans or whatever's being sold in the market that day. You can see that even as glorious and as perfect and as aspired as this language is, and it is, it's not even scratching the surface of how big our God is. Creation is absolutely a metaphor for the enormity of our God. But it's a, it's a metaphor that falls short. Not because creation is not awesome. Creation is awesome. It's a metaphor that falls short because God is just too big. He's just too big. So yeah, let's, let's, let's describe him as holding every drop of water in his hand. Let's describe him as holding every mountain on a scale. Let's describe him as holding every grain of sand in a basket because that's absolutely appropriate and right. But let's also acknowledge that's still falling completely short of really capturing the size of our God. The entire universe, that's eh, about right. And all the hills in a balance. Verse 13, we get to another aspect of God. We've talked about his simple enormity of size. Verse 13, who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Well, remember Job tried that. 
Job, a godly man, a godly servant, has been enjoying his eternal reward for a couple thousand years, but he tried to be the Lord's counselor. And we all remember, hopefully, from our reading of Job, how that ultimately worked out for him. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? When's the last time God came to you and said, you know what, I've got this problem I can't quite figure out. I'm hoping you're going to be able to help me with it. You know, I, I, I know I'm running the whole universe, but I've really got this real difficult issue, and I really need you to help me sort this out because I'm at a loss. When's the last time in your quiet time the Lord said that to you? Well, if any of you are raising your hand, that was not a very good quiet time. <laughs> Who taught him the right way? Moral standards. Who told God what is right and what is wrong? Well, unfortunately, we live in a culture that's trying to do that. We live in a culture that's trying to tell this, this ginormous God, this is right and this is wrong. You know, well, anyhow. Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? So here we have this other incredible component to our Lord. And the word infinite, I mean, we use it, we kind of know what it means. I was never that great in math. They can talk about infinity or whatever that is, that sideways eight, I think, is something like that. But when we say it, it just seems so, so inadequate, the infinite wisdom of God. But what other word can we use? What other phrase can we use? Human language just starts to fall woefully short. God knows so much because he knows everything. His wisdom is without limit. His knowledge is without limit. It's without beginning. It's without end. There's no dark corner that he doesn't perceive or understand. Our God is all-knowing, all-wise. And the Spirit of the Lord was now inspiring Isaiah to try to give voice to that. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient fire for altars, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Jump down with me now to verse 26. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Again, we have no idea how many stars there are. We've counted a lot. I was going to look it up. I forgot. I apologize how many known counted stars there are. I don't know if it's a trillion or a billion or a million. It's a lot. It's a lot of counted stars. And you know what? Astronomers are absolutely certain there's way more beyond what we've counted. And look at what... Look, 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 look at what Isaiah challenges, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls each of them by name? You know, I don't know if you still can, but it used to be you could send someone like $200 and they'd name a star after whoever you wanted. You give that to someone as a birthday gift. I always thought that was kind of a cool gift. I mean, there's so many stars Human beings have run out of names. They ran out of names, I don't know, a trillion stars ago, a billion stars ago. So now they're selling names. But the Lord says, hey, wait a second, I, I named that one. You can call it that, but I'm the one that created it. And I have a name for it. And one day, if you love astronomy, God will be happy to share with you the name of every star in his universe. <laughs> He'll be delighted to do that with you. Share with you the name that he's given to every star that he put in his universe. He calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. As much as the astronomers and all the other folks that gaze at the stars revel in them, we had nothing to do with putting them there. And if one of them doesn't show up, it wasn't because of us. And if they faithfully show up every night, it wasn't because of us. The God who named each one of them brings them out each night. 
So you can see as we are looking at chunks and pieces of Isaiah 40, really three things that we're very familiar with. Haven't you heard? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Don't you know? One, our God is really good. If you were expecting a really profound theological message today, you're going to be kind of disappointed. (laughs) Because the first point is, our God is really good. He speaks comforting words. He speaks encouraging words. He speaks to our heart. He encourages us. Our God is really good. Point number two, you know it. Our God is really big. I mean, he's really, really big. Just, if you haven't already started to, just spend some time focusing, meditating on Isaiah 40. And be blown away. Let God blow you away. Let God bring you to your knees in the, 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 the quiet of your, 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 wherever you have your quiet time. Let God bring tears to your eyes. Let God bring laughter to your soul as you read Isaiah 40. That's what he wants. Our God is really big. And the third point, our God is really wise. He really is. So three things that are absolute anchor points for each of us. Three points that are absolutely central to Isaiah chapter 40 that hopefully our littlest kids are learning right now in Sunday school because these are not complex. This is not advanced trigonometry. This is not, you know, physical whatever theory that I never understood when I took physics. This is just absolute bedrock who our God is and what he wants us to know about him. He's good, he's big, and he's wise. Now, haven't you heard that? Yes. Don't you know that? Yes. But do we forget it? Unfortunately, we do. And quickly, because I know I've been standing up here for a while already. There's three things that Isaiah says start to happen when we forget. When we forget what we've heard. When we forget what has been told us. When we forget what we know. When we start losing track of the fact that God is really good, God is really big, and God is really wise. Well, what starts to happen? Well, let's look at verse 17. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Well, you know what's coming next. Idolatry. As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Now it's interesting because in Isaiah 40, that's all that he does to address the stupidity of idolatry. There are some chapters coming where he's going to mock it far more effectively But this is just sort of a foretaste. But when you start to really grasp how good, how big, how wise our God is, do you see the absolute idiocy of trying to represent him with some wood or some silver or some gold? I mean, the mockery that Isaiah is going to have with idolatry in these next couple of chapters is it's hilarious. You know, in one case, he says the idol worshiper, he cuts a block of wood, and with half of it, he crafts an idol and says, this is my God. And then with the other half of it, he builds a fire and cooks some food and eats his dinner, and he's happy because his belly is full. And the Lord says, what an idiot. What an idiot. To think that he could compare me to half of a block of wood 
The other half just fed him for a couple of hours. Idolatry is sheer idiocy. And we start to slip into idolatry when? When we start forgetting how good God is, how big God is, how wise God is. When we don't keep those things in the forefront of our attention, when we don't focus on those things, meditate on those things, pray on those things, talk about those things with each other, when those things start to diminish in our hearts, start to diminish in our mind, we start to slip a little bit closer to the idiocy of idolatry. And it is stupid. It is stupid. One of the greatest ways to guard our heart against worshiping something more than we should, fixating on something more than we should, finding our value from something more than we should. One of the greatest dangers of idolatry is we find our value in the thing that we worship. One of the greatest ways to safeguard against that is keep the goodness and the bigness and the wisdom of God in front of your eyes. The more that you do that, the more that idolatry will just seem stupid. And it should. Anything that we give our heart to, anything that we find our value in, anything that we worship, anything that we idolize in place of God is no better than a piece of wood. It's as dumb as a stone. And Isaiah is going to rail against that even more. But one of the real dangers of forgetting what we've heard one of the real dangers of forgetting what we know is slipping a little bit closer to idolatry. Second warning, there's three warnings we're going to highlight here, and I, I promise we're, we'll wind things down. A second warning that comes up, we find in verse 27. We find in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord my cause is disregarded by my God, or my justice is passed over from God. So what, what is being given voice here in verse 27? Well, I really think it's, it's doubt. It's uncertainty. It's a lack of faith. It's a sense that the infinitely wise God doesn't see what's going on in your life. It's the crazy thought that runs through your mind that's saying this God who's supposed to be so good and so big and so wise has forgotten me and has forgotten my situation and is unaware of my circumstance. And you see, when, when we start minimizing the goodness of God, the size of God, the wisdom of God, we probably don't do it intentionally. We probably don't wake up in the morning and say, wow, God is really evil and he's really puny and he's not very smart. I mean, that probably is not anything that really ever overtly rests in our heart. But when we start getting lazy, complacent about letting the word of God, letting the fellowship of believers, letting the worship of God remind us of how good he is, of how big he is, of how wise he is, then somewhat unintentionally, doubt starts to creep into our heart. I think maybe God has forgotten me. I think maybe he's not doing all that he could or all that he should. But of course, the prophet says, Israel, why do you say that? And so it's just a single verse. That, that doubt, that shaking of faith, it's just a single verse. Because the avalanche, the, the, the Niagara waterfall, of Isaiah 40 is how good God is, how big God is, how wise God is. 
Now, what if in our daily life, that was our personal balance? My complaint about what God is not doing, my doubt, my fear, my anxiety, my uncertainty. Okay, there's verse 27. It's there. But then the rest and the far greater majority of what's coming out of my mouth, of what's being lifted up to God in prayer, of what is the focus of my heart and mind is how good he is, how big he is, how wise he is. What if the balance of Isaiah 40, a little bit of complaint and doubt, a whole lot of the character of God, what if that was actually the balance of my daily life? Well, unfortunately, I think I'd be living a very different life. I'm embarrassed to admit that to you. But I think if really I took seriously the balance of Isaiah 40 and recognized, okay, there are moments that I have doubt. There are moments that I question. There are moments that I wonder. There are verse 27 moments. But what if they were far outweighed by my determination to focus on the character of God? What if just in my daily life I gave far more voice to how good God is, how big God is, how wise God is, and far less voice to my uncertainties and my doubts? You see, because when I start to forget, when I start to de-emphasize, when I start to marginalize the goodness, the bigness, the wisdom of my God, then those doubts start to become way bigger. And those anxieties and those fears and those worries and those woe is me attitudes and poor me attitudes, they start to take control of my heart. Second real danger that we face. The third and final one that we'll look at today, verse 30. And I never, I don't think quite seen it this way before. But verse 30 says, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. Well, of course, that's in the context of waiting on the Lord. And if you wait on the Lord, you won't grow weary. If you wait on the Lord, you won't grow tired. And that's an incredible promise that ends this incredible chapter. But right there in verse 30, even youths grow tired and weary, young men stumble and fall. Well, in the ancient world, a young man was the absolute pinnacle of physical vigor physical ability, physical strength. So if you wanted to sort of epitomize the best of human effort, you would look at a strong, young, healthy man. That's just the way the ancient world looked. But what does God say about them? The best, the best, the best that humanity can offer in terms of strength and vigor and energy and effort. The best, the best, the best that humanity can put forward. They get tired. And they stumble, and they grow weary. Human effort will always fall short. Human effort will always fall short. And you see, here's what starts to happen. The more I minimize and forget what I've heard, what I know, how good God is, how big God is, how wise God is, what do I become tempted to do? take matters into my own hands, start solving my own problems, start overstepping my role as creator, excuse me, created by my creator, my role as follower, I start taking matters into my own hands. And I think by my effort, by my wisdom, by my strength, by my tenacity, by my education, by my whatever, whatever, I think I can start to solve my own problems. And you know what's going to (laughs) happen? You're going to get really tired. You're going to get really weary. And you're going to stumble and fall, maybe break your nose, maybe split open your ear, maybe survive. But remember, those mountains are pretty big. They're pretty hard. When you fall on one, they hurt. But that's the third pitfall that I want us to consider. When we start minimizing our God, we start getting tempted to take matters into our own hands. We start trying to orchestrate circumstances in a way 
where we are solving our own problems. And you may be able to fake it for a while. God may be gracious to you and let you get away with it for a while, but in the end, you will grow weary, you will grow tired, and you will stumble. The best, the best, the best that our effort apart from God can accomplish is really nothing. <laughs> Just tires us out. I would, I would challenge each one of us to consider if you're feeling really weary, and there's a lot of causes of weariness, just ask the Lord, am I feeling weary because I'm trying to fix my own problems and it's not working? Because, you know, God loves us. He absolutely loves us. Remember, he's good. He is so good. And when he sees us trying to solve our own problems, I think a lot of the times he's probably more amused than anything else. And he's like, you know... Okay, be like that, 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 that kid that's just pushing against the door the wrong way. That door's never going to open. One of my favorite, they used to have these single panel um, comics. I forget what it was called, but they were just one panel. And there was one on the door, it said, School for the Gifted. And it said, pull open. And this kid is pushing against it with all of his might, trying to push the door open to... Anyways. Our Father is good. And he looks at us and he says, okay, you can be like that dog chasing his tail. You can be like that gerbil running on that thing that just goes and goes and goes. I don't know, does anyone even have gerbils anymore? But they used to have those circles that you run on forever. They run till their poor little hearts can't beat anymore. And they haven't gone anywhere. It's like running on a treadmill. That's why I hate running on a treadmill. I run and run and run and I'm dead tired. I can't breathe anymore. I'm still at the stinking spot where I started. I hate treadmills. But when we try to solve problems in our own strength, when we try to take matters into our own hands, when we forget how good God is, when we forget how big God is, when we forget how wise God is, all we're going to do is tire ourselves out. We're just going to tire ourselves out. So what is the solution? Well, we all know it. Wait on the Lord. That's why we've come to the end of Isaiah 40 a thousand times, most of us. That's why the end of Isaiah 40 is one of the best-known passages of Isaiah, maybe, in Scripture. You know, Carl gave us an excellent message last week. God is waiting on us, and he is. You know what one of the things he's waiting for? He's waiting for us to wait on him. To stop turning to idols. To stop maximizing the poor me state of my life. To stop taking matters into my own hands. Living word. Haven't you heard? Don't you know? Our God is really good. Our God is really big. Our God is really wise. Let's wait on him. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for giving us this time together today. And God, we do thank you for the incredible message of Isaiah 40. And as much time as we've just spent looking at it, we're not even scratching the surface. Father, we thank you for the good, good news that you have given to us. Our hard labor is over. Jesus Christ has paid double for our sins. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And thank you for these amazing declarations of your size and your wisdom, the infinite nature of your very being, words that, that roll off our tongues that our minds can barely comprehend and still are only grasping the littlest bit of you. God, all eternity, all eternity, time without end is insufficient to discover everything that you are. And so we thank you for eternity. We thank you for the blessing of being able to spend forever in awe and wonder and worship of you. And Father, I just ask you to forgive me for the countless times throughout my day that I question your goodness, that I make you small, that I question your wisdom. 
you are running your universe in absolute perfection. And God, forgive me for thinking otherwise. Forgive me for in my heart questioning you. And God, we see the bad fruit that comes. It's like biting into an apple and finding it mushy with a worm. The bad fruit that comes when we choose to minimize your goodness, your bigness, your wisdom. Our hearts become tempted by idols. Complaint is the primary word that comes out of our mouth. And we start taking matters into our own hands. So God, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us. And Lord, help us. Help us to wait on you. Help us to wait on you, your perfect timing, your perfect ways, for that perfect completion of the salvation and work that you have started. And Jesus, it is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen.